So thanks very much for coming here today uh, to this windowless room on the hottest day of the year so far. Um, <laughs> I'm first of all going to introduce you to our fantastic panel. We have on the far side here Ian Smith, OBE. Ian was born and raised in Glasgow, a graduate of the London School of Film Technique, now known as the London <coughs> Film School, where he is a patron. He's an established international film producer, recipient of a BAFTA for Outstanding Achievement in Film. He is CEO of Apple Cross Productions and of Zaltman Films Limited, based at Pinewood, and has many production credits to his name, including Mad Max, Fury Road, Chariots of Fire, Local Hero, The Killing Fields, The Mission, The Fifth Element, Children of Men, The Fountain, Wanted and The A-Team, to name but a few. So not terrifying to have on a panel at all. Uh, in his spare time, Ian's chair of the Film Skills Council and of the Film Industry Training Board and is chair of the British Film Commission sitting on the boards of several of the UK Screen Academies. In 2008, he was made an OBE for services to film. Um, Angus, on my left, is based in Glasgow and a producer at Crab Apple Films. Angus has produced films such as The Girl with All the Gifts, 71, uh, Donkey Punch and Late Night Shopping. Next to Gus we have Lou McLaughlin. Lou's an experienced documentary filmmaker who enjoys developing strong stories through character portraits and their relationships. In 2011, she was chosen by BAFTA as one of the Brits to watch after making Caring for Callum and made her first feature film, 16 Years Till Summer, in 2015, which was BAFTA and Grierson nominated. And finally, uh, John McLean. John studied for a BA drawing and painting at Edinburgh Art College and an MA painting at the Royal College of Art. He was a founder member of the Beta Band in 1997 and the Aliens from 2005 to 2010. He made most of the band's music promos um, and his first independent short, Man on a Motorcycle, starred Michael Fassbender. This fruitful collaboration led to his second short, Pitch Black Heist, also starring Fassbender and Liam Cunningham. Um, commissioned by Film 4, it won the 2012 Best Short Film BAFTA. John has made his first feature, Slow West, funded by Film 4, the BFI and the New Zealand Film Council. It premiered at the Sundance Film Festival and won the World Cinema Grand Jury Award before being released in cinemas worldwide. I think it would be good to know what you each did in your early careers before you felt ready to embark on your <coughs> first feature. Did you make shorts, music videos? What did you do? Gus? Well, I worked in television for quite a long time as a researcher and a producer doing factual entertainment shows. Um, and at that time, when you were working in the freelance sector in television in Scotland, you would tend to come across a lot of people whose uh, main work was actually in films, whether it was documentary films or feature films. So you immediately had a cross-fertilisation um, with people from, from that world. So having worked in TV, it was quite... Uh, I was encouraged and um, felt that there was a possibility that you could also work in films or in fiction. Uh, and that was because of meeting those types of people 
who, who were on the crew with you doing your TV shows. And at that time, I'm going back really to the 90s, the early 90s, there was quite a conventional route to make a feature film, which was that you would make short films. And that's really, the simple answer is that I made a lot of short films um, using the short filmmaking schemes that the people who could eventually make your first feature, they funded the shorts. You got to know them because you're, you're making the shorts for them, whether that's British Screen or uh, the equivalent of Creative Scotland at the time. Uh, the film office in Glasgow put money into shorts, BBC, um, Film 4. So eventually, BFI, and eventually you get to know them because you've made, maybe made three or four different shorts for them. If they've gone well, then they think, okay, we can trust you. And they're interested in the people you're bringing them and the stories, the directors and writers. And those organisations are motivated to make people's first films. So that was really, that was the way I got into it, was make, making shorts, really. At that time, you're shooting short films on 35mm, 16mm. You could get, you know, £50,000 to make a short film, even back then. And uh, they got exposure. They were shown on TV. Some of them got short releases. Uh, some of them went out in front of feature films. So it was quite a well-established route, with ex main examples being something like Peter Mullen, who did Fridge. Then Fridge gets him his first film, uh, Lynn Ramsey did a couple of short films, then she's seen as being ready to make a feature film. So that was really how I got into it. Mm. Lou, is short films as important a way in for documentary makers? Um, I don't know. I don't know that there's a big difference between... Uh, there is a difference in the process between documentary and fiction. But I think knowing your short grammar um, probably comes from, from many places. Mm. And um, I graduated in 1998 and for about... 10 years I was doing bizarre things like making films for charities. I did a lot of vision mixing, which is just kind of, um, well, it's just live editing basically, and you're talking to cameras all the time, which is really good for you to learn your shot grammar, I guess. Um, and then I hit a ceiling and I knew that I needed to learn more. I was repeating myself. Um, so I went to ECA and studied film there with Emma Davey. And I guess that was the kind of breakthrough because I came out made a, a, a film there called uh, Caring for Callum, which won um, two New Talent BAFTAs, an RTS and a Grierson, and got me on the BAFTA Brits to Watch list. Um, so then it was like, well, you've got all this stuff you know, on paper, um, so then you can present a feature film idea to somebody, and you've got a bit of credibility there. Um, so that was when I presented 16 Years Till Summer idea, and they were more, it was more likely to get funded, obviously, because of that because that track record. So you studied film and you did lots of other jobs as well. To learn the craft. Vision, I just mixing, wanted to study with, with, with the sort of the older people in the industry mm -hmm. who would just teach me what they knew. I didn't want to learn it at college. I wanted to spend 10 years with people I knew and I liked just learning the craft. 10 years back. learning the craft. And enjoying yeah. it, yeah. I mean, I liked, I liked vision mixing haul. a lot. It was good. Yeah, yeah. it was, it was, it was fun. John, you were a musician. <coughs> Did that help you become a filmmaker? Um, not in a direct way, but I suppose when I was at art school, um, I worked in the Cameo Cinema in Edinburgh. We did, I did late night double bills every Friday, Saturday night, and got a film education of the history of cult cinema and history of cinema. And um, 
and that was where my love of cinema started, really. And then when the band stuff came along, um, I immediately wanted to direct the music videos, but I really saw them as a sort of... I didn't see them as music videos, I saw them as short films in a way, so I was trying to always tell stories through the three minutes of the song. I was always wanting to stop the song, have bits of dialogue if need be, or... Um, so just really spent, you know, made... And <clears throat> sometimes the record company would say, the budget's £20,000 for this one music video, and I'd go back to them and say, can I make one for each song on the album for a grand each or whatever? And just trying to constantly make stuff, you know, and it was quite a nice time, even though it was maybe the end of the 90s, there was still, the Mac had final cut and DV cameras were kind of getting a little bit better. So um, I was able just to go out with my camera, have the rest of the band as actors and shoot it and then edit it and then put it to the music. So it felt like I was doing this sort of learning every part of the trade really, especially editing actually. Um, and then the hard part for me was convincing anyone in the film, meeting anyone in the film industry for a start because I didn't go to film school. And, and secondly, convincing anyone that these music videos were somehow going to, because I, I could do them, I could do a short film. You know, there was, um, they were seen as sort of different things by other people until, um, <clears throat> yeah, and I tried in the Scottish, the Glasgow film industry, I tried to sort of meet people and get into and got no luck, and I tried again in London and got no luck. Eventually I found uh, um, a friend of mine said his friend was uh, an actor's agent, so I sort of went for drinks with him and tried to get him to help me out, and um, I showed him all my clips, uh, music videos and on YouTube, and then um, he, happened to represent Michael Fassbender and he showed my clips to Michael one night when they were just drinking and watching YouTube. And, and Michael was the first person to actually see something filmic in the music videos. And he said, look, if you fancy doing something, gave me one day of his time. And um, I still didn't know anyone else in the industry, so I decided to shoot on my mobile phone, um, put a grand of my own money into it and just do things myself, edit it myself. And, once I had that, which was an eight-minute short film, finally I got into one or two festivals and got film four interested. And but I had to have that. I had to already have that short film. Did you target specific festivals? Are there specific festivals you should be targeting to get yourself um, known? It's so random. I've been on both sides now of festival juries and festivals. And for a man on a motorcycle, I spent eleven months getting knockbacks from every festival big festivals, small festivals, Soho Shorts, Knock Me Back, Rain Dance, Knock Me Back. And finally, I got into London Film Festival. So um, I got into a big one, I got knocked back on small ones, and mm -hmm. the same thing happened for Pitch Black Heist. You know, it's sort of quite How well known was Michael Fassbender at this point? Um, yeah, he was, he was shooting with Tarantino at this point, but he'd already done Shame, and, you know, and, right. and even that. I think I shot it on my mobile phone, and it was black and white. People might have thought that was a little... It didn't meet the technical specs or something, so mm -hmm. it went in the bin or who knows, but, um, you know, I'm proud of it. It was good. <laughs> and it brought you to the attention of Film 4. It did, and, you know, and I spent months and months writing the script. I mean, we'll get into all the writing and stuff, but I just didn't, I, I didn't just knock it out, you know. Mm -hmm. I, um, yeah. I spent a lot of time trying to craft it. Yeah. 
And Ian, your very first feature film, would it be Local Hero? No, no, no. Oh, <coughs> Actually, my first feature film was when I was at film school, which I went to unsupported, incidentally, by the Scottish Education Department, who wrote me a charming letter, which I still got, saying that film is not an academic subject. So we and bugger off, you know. And I, so I worked my way through the school. I worked at the National Film Theatre in the bar. So I saw lots and lots of classic films, but I missed the first 10 minutes of each one of them because I was washing up the glasses. But anyway, enough of that. I met Bill, for, uh, Bill Douglas at uh, film school, and um, I, I started to set up um, what became my childhood with the BFI production board. And I budgeted it at £7,000. And a couple of weeks before we were due to start, they said, well, we can't afford £7,000 because we've got this other film called Sculpture in the Landscape, which I'm sure you've all heard of. <coughs> um, so we're going to divvy it up between the two of you. So Sculpture in the Landscape got three and a half, and my childhood got three and a half, and it was an absolute hell. It was a complete baptism in fire. Because Doug, uh, Bill Douglas was a very, very difficult, tormented, um, self-disturbing individual, but it was a very valuable, looking back, it was a very valuable experience. But I then teamed up with uh, uh, Bill Forsyth and Charlie Gormley and Mick Coulter to form a company called Tree Films. And basically the principle of Tree Films was to make whatever anyone had any money for. So we made all sorts of things. I mean, I think actually we made something in the region of about 80 little things, productions, um, over the, through the 70s. And towards the end of the 70s, we, we were getting more and more frustrated that really we should be making real films and not films about bridges or sunsets. Um, and um, so we, we all started to kind of look over the wall a bit more. Um, and uh, the thing that, that uh, looking back, uh, gave me the break was I heard Bertrand Tavernier on, on, on um, Radio Scotland talking about Glasgow and saying what a wonderful city it was and how he was going to make his next film in Glasgow. So I started the process which lasted for three years of writing a letter to BBC Queen Margaret Drive for Bertrand Tavernier saying, if you do come to Glasgow, or no, when you do come to Glasgow, I'm your man. I can fix it. And um, every so often I'd be in a pub and I'd suddenly remember, it's six months, so I'm going to write another one. And I did that literally for three years. And then one day, my, my phone in um, Gibson Street, where I was um, accommodated at the time, um, rang and it was a, a very nice American guy saying, Mr. Tavernier and I are at uh, Heathrow Airport and we we're just about to fly to Abbott's Inch, as it then was. Could you meet us at the airport? And I beetled off to, absolutely, no, no problem, beetled off to Abbott's Inch in my little green um, Ford Escort, where the seat, if you leaned back, the seat would collapse. <laughs> and um, to these two august gentlemen, Bertrand and this wonderful man, Bob Parrish, and took them round Glasgow for three days. And I, I knew the city unbelievably well. I mean, I knew all the alleyways and the back bits and the ch old churches and stuff. And at the end, Bertrand said, um, I, I am coming to make the movie and I want you to be in charge of production. Um, so that was my first proper feature with Harvey Keitel, Max von Sydow, and the wonderful and tragic Romy Schneider. Um, and it was very successful. It's actually a pretty good film. I saw it fairly recently. Um, but that then put me in 
in the eye line of uh, Putnam, and, um, and then Chariots of Fire came along and I looked after production on it. I wasn't producing it, but I looked after production on that. And then he basically tossed um, the killing fields at me and said, this is your biggest problem in life starting from now. <laughs> Go and do it. And it was. It was, that was very, very tough, but we pulled it off. And we made a film that won Oscars. And the minute you win Oscars, you start to get into a different level of interfacing with, um, with the business. So that's kind of how I started off. Big brass neck. Just lots well, of You've got to have a bit of belief in yourself. I mean, looking back on it, it was kind of, uh, kind of uh, stupid, actually. I think you need a, a bit of stupidity to kind of not really look at everything, you know, because if you look at everything, then you'll see nothing, strangely enough. So the, the, the idea that you can actually take something from um, an idea and, and end up watching it winning awards um, in, in cinemas, you know, is something, if you don't believe you can do that, then don't, don't even start. Yeah. John and Lou, you made your first features most recently so I wanted to ask you how you made the move from your shorts and your other work that you were doing to getting your first feature films into development. Um, did you take them to producers? Where you found? Did you work on your own? How, how did it happen? Lou? Um, I went to, again, it was on the back of Caring for Callum getting into a couple of festivals. So one of them was Reykjavik, um, and they had a talent lab which is quite handy when you're going from shorts to features to go to the talent labs. Bell and Ali was another one I went to. Um, and when I was in ICE, when I was in Reykjavik, um, I just thought, well, I'm here. I might as well make some appointments with some production companies and tell them, you know, I've got this feature idea. And Iceland at that point had just been really sort of feisty with its bankers and I knew they had a bit of spirit about them. So I went into one of the production companies there and, and just said, here's the here's a short, this is what I think is going to happen to these people in the next couple of years, um, see what you think. Um, I'm looking for a co-producer, a production company who will work with a company in Britain. Then we also got, um, so they said yes, and then we also got, I think it was development money it's called, from Creative Scotland to make a trailer, which is really handy for documentary makers mm. um, because you can put it together, um, you've got the money to actually follow where, wherever your characters are at that time, um, edit it, and then I could take it to a fantastic pitching forum, which is, really, again, really important for documentary makers. I don't know if fiction makers have to do this, but we took it to Vision de Real um, in Switzerland, which is a brilliant um, pitching forum for documentary makers. Mm -hmm. And instead of kind of pitching to an, an audience who have just paid to come in, what you do is you sit around 12 tables in turn, and talk to people who are in the industry. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you talk to TV channels, you talk to possible co-producers, distributors, sales agents, everybody. Um, so it's a fantastic pitching forum to go. And that's how we got the rest of the money for the film. BR bought it in Germany. Um, and then we went on from there, really, in Creative Scotland, gave us more money. Great. I think that pitching thing is quite interesting, because quite often in festivals, teams, writers, directors are asked to pitch to rooms full of people like this mm. and it's really terrifying. Mm. Angus, is that how pitching actually happens then? <coughs> it's not generally done in front of an audience, no. <laughs> but you can't, I mean, people, people do it and sometimes you will find yourself in meetings, especially if you, if you start going to the US where 
you'd meet in, you might have seven or eight people in a room representing a company, but no, normally uh, just be in a normal office environment, one or two people, three, or it might just be down the pub, or it might be having a coffee, it can be quite informal, it might, you might not even have set up a meeting with someone when you've, you meet them by accident and you've, you know, you've kind of got to be ready and if you make a connection with someone and you think you've got something that they might be interested in, then you can pitch it there and then, and that might be the moment. But generally, no, I mean, I certainly wouldn't get involved in that kind of performance. Mm. I know what happens at a lot of festivals and there are mm. prizes, there are actual, you can get money, yeah. but uh, I wouldn't do that. But um, there, was a, there was a writer on Tui Muller's <coughs> blog, Tui Muller's a kind of documentary yeah, aficionado, and this guy said that pitching was like lap dancing, but without the dignity. <laughs> <laughs> No, That's very good. You do have to be a bit flexible as well when you're talking to say it's, say it's an ad hoc one. You think, well, they didn't like that one, but I've got this other one. Ah, I remember that one, I'll try that. Um, but I think one of the things to remember is uh, when you're trying to make your, your first project, whether that's a short or a feature film or TV drama or whatever it is, you just have to be alert to the opportunities. And sometimes those kind of situations and competitions are genuine opportunities. So. Why not? You know, go for it. John, how did mm. how did you get your first feature into development? Um, I think basically <clears throat> when I made, when I made Man on a Motorcycle, um, because the only person in the industry, as I said, was that I knew was Michael and his agent. I mean, that felt like the most important relationship, and um, I just made sure the day shooting with Michael was fun and I sort of even wrote the script around what I thought he might like to do and I knew he liked riding motorcycles so I made it a motorcycle courier thing and um, I just so that you'd work with me again and then he did work with me again <laughs> and then for Pitch Black Heist it was the same thing I, I made sure that the food was fantastic on Pitch Black Heist I got like a great chef and um, I made sure that we wrapped maybe an hour or two early each day. Um, I knew that I could shoot the film in three days, so I asked for four um, and finished early every day and, you know, just made the experience pleasant and um, he wanted to work with me again. So um, that was my main way into discussing a feature. Basically, Man on a Motorcycle Film 4 had sent someone along to see and then they brought me in and they said <coughs> would you like to make a short and I made Pitch Black Heist with them and it was a fruitful collaboration so they said what do you want to do next and I said I, I thought I was ready to do a feature film um, and I think I would get Michael um, so I started writing a script based around Michael being the lead and um, uh, I just went into film four, and again, I've never, I've never really pitched. I don't think I've ever done that. But I've talked about the seeds of the idea to a room full of people and saying, you know, I want to make a western. I want to make it about a Scottish boy that goes out to the west. Um, and that's about all I had because a lot of the, the treatment would come from writing the script, really. So um, it was just developing those relationships with film four with Michael um, and yeah and just making sure then that the script was going to be uh, you know as great as 
it had to be because Michael wasn't just going to go, I'll do any film. You know, he was getting scripts from Scorsese and everyone, so my script had to be as good or better than the, all the other scripts he was getting. So um, mm. I just delved into the script for about a year. Would you say script is the most important thing in your debut feature? Um, <coughs> I don't think there is a most important thing in film. I think everything at every stage is the most important thing. <laughs> so. Um, the most important thing, yes, I mean, you want to make every single stage the best it can be. So while you're writing and while it's relatively cheap, which is a pencil and a bit of paper, <coughs> then you may as well make sure that's the, the best it can be. Yeah. How long did you spend writing the script for Slow West? It was about a year to a year and a half. I spent about eight months writing Pitch Black Heist, which was t 12 minutes I spent months writing Man on a Motorcycle, which was only six minutes. So yeah, there's, you know, um, a lot of time on the script, yeah. Mm -hmm. Ian, how yes. can, how can <coughs> new writers or directors get their ideas into you? Do you ever work with first time feature makers? Uh, not often, I have to be honest. Um, <coughs> Because most of the, the the scale of the kind of work that I'm doing tends to be too big for first timers. But having said that, the world is changing, and we're seeing a new ways of delivering content to audiences. And um, I think there are more opportunities now for uh, uh, emergent talent than there have ever been, as far as back as I can remember. So I'm always looking at, at um, short films in particular looking to see good writing talent, good ideas, good storytelling, uh, good filmmaking talent, because um, th there will come a point where there's a, there's a connection and suddenly there's a lot of money that can be joined up with a, 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 a young, powerful opportunity. I mean, the danger when you get to my end of the spectrum is that you become basically tired and repetitive. So you've got to always bear that in mind and keep undermining yourself and keep saying, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah. you know. I mean, I had a, a, when we were setting up Entrapment, we had a pitch from an A-list writer who I, I won't name. It was the most amazing pitch I've ever seen. We sat there watching this guy describing this movie that we'd developed, you know. And um, we, we commissioned him, paid a lot of money, and after some time the script, the screenplay came in and it was, um, not put too fine a word on it, a heap of shit. <laughs> so there are people who are great at doing pitch and there are people that are great at writing. And at the end of the day, I suppose after a long career, I would say you've, you've got to know when you're dealing with a real writer. And by a real writer, I mean someone who understands not so much the technique of film, but the technique of storytelling and understand the interesting relationship between scale and spectacle and setting and all of those things and period and so on, and, and human concern and interest. Uh, the, the, trick, the trick in everything, in, in, including Fury Road, you know, the trick is in spite of all the action and the drama and the crash and the bash and the smash, you know, it's really what's going on in, in the eyes of your key players. And if you, can, if you can find a writer that understands that intrinsically, then that, that's a very valuable discovery. I read, about, I read probably 
in the vicinity of about 200 scripts a year, and um, very, very few of them would I want to do anything with. I have done a few things. And it's just a very difficult, very vulnerable process. People say to me, what's the most difficult part of the process? Without a shadow of a doubt, it's development. And when you're looking at short films and looking for new directing talent, what, what do you see that makes you think this is a great new directing talent? <clears throat> well, as I said, good storytelling. That's, that's above everything. Um, you know, Arthur Miller, the, the playwright, said um, something along the lines of, give the audience what they want, but in a way they least expect. And, and there's a lot in that, actually. You can tell a good storyteller because they keep you surprised, they keep you wrong-footed. So that's, that, I would say, is the first one. Secondly, looking at a, a, a filmmaker who has got good camera direction and understand not to, not to have the, the camera kind of invisibilised so that you kind of go through the camera to get to the content. That's, a, that's an important thing. They're not trying to show off. I'm, I'm very, very... Um, I get really pissed off with self-conscious movie making, and there's a lot of it around, where you're basically trying to show the audience that, that you're a great filmmaker, you know? Mm. So, so that's no good. And, um, and, and thirdly, I would say the ability to deal with actors, and the ability to understand the complex relationship with the creativity and insecurity of actors. And, and, and a director who can't deal with that and there are many of those too, uh, is, is just self-damaging. I mean, you, you, have to have, you have to have a relationship with the actors. They are your, they are your front end. They are the thing that the audience will care about. Um, and so you have to love them. When you want to smack them, you have to hug them <laughs> and, and listen to all their, their worries and concerns, even if you, as a rational being, I can't even begin to understand why they should be so concerned about this or that. So, and that quite often falls to the producer. Mm -hmm. that you become the shoulder to cry on. I'm quite good at that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to come back to you in a minute and ask you about the role of the producer, but Gus, I just want to ask you first um, what it is as a producer that attracts you to a project, um, and you have worked with first-time writers and directors. 71 was written by Gregory Burke and directed by Jan Demange, and they were both first-time feature filmmakers. Yeah. Um, what made you believe that that project was <coughs> worth uh, getting behind? Well, that one was slightly different, because that was, that was my project, that was my idea. And I, I had the notion that, um, so philosophical reasons I won't bore you with, but I thought that um, it was it, it was possible that the British audience, particularly British audience and maybe an international audience, but a British audience would be interested in revisiting a, a very turbulent period in our own history that was in an obvious kind of high calorie way that war is. Um, there was you know there was a lot of conflict and drama. Uh, in a sort of shoot, shooting guns way, an obvious way, um, and I thought it was a, there was a this time at the start of the, the troubles in Northern Ireland when people in the UK just did not have a clue what was happening in a part of their own country. So I wanted to revisit that, but I wanted to revisit it in an accessible way, without having to get involved with, you know, in 1690, 
King William of Orange came from Holland to, you know, so we couldn't get into all that, but we wanted to somehow reflect what was, uh, what was happening there. So I thought that might be, might be best done through a, a genre vehicle, um, but a genre vehicle that would still have some heart to it and still have some substance to it and would be able to smuggle in these other things that I wanted to do with the film, which was to, to inform people about the truth about what, what had happened in that time, in that place. And because Gregory Burke had written a very successful play uh, about a British Army regiment, I thought he would be a good person to have the voice of the squaddy. Um, and we <coughs> so we developed the script <coughs> pretty much with that brief. So you had seen his work in theatre and identified him yeah. as... And I knew, coming from Scotland, and I knew a bit about his background, I knew he understood sectarianism. Uh, he understood about Catholics and Protestants and Orange Lodge and the Provisional IRA and the UDA and the UVF. And these were not, you know, these were not mysterious phrases to him. He got all that, so he was a good candidate and he was interested in doing it. And very quickly we had our script that people were very interested in, so that people I'd already worked with say at the BFI and Film 4 in particular, said, all right, we know who this scriptwriter is because of his play. So we know he's a dramatist that we're interested in who could probably transition from theatre to, to films. So we're interested in him anyway. We really like this script. And the next question is, uh, well, who's going to direct it? And uh, Film 4 had been trying to make a film with Jan de Monde for a number of years. In, and although he's a first-time feature director, he was relatively experienced in TV drama, um, and he had some work on his CV that we thought was you know, suitable for this type of film. Um, so he became the candidate number one that we were going to try and land to direct the film, and uh, we knew from film four that he'd been very selective over the years and was f finding it difficult to find something that he believed in enough to want to make as his debut film. But he was someone who they already were motivated to try and find a project for, and it just so happened that when he read it, he, you know, he really got it, got under the skin of it um, in a way that really surprised myself and the other producer on the film, and we thought we were very lucky to get this guy to do it. And, but he did want to do it, and we kind of took it on from there, but it was very difficult because he was quite definite, having been a film school graduate himself, he understood how important it was that he got his first film right, because that's his career right there. Um, so he was very, very insistent that we were able as producers to give him the resources to deliver what was in the script. And that was quite expensive, because it was a period film with quite a lot of action in it and difficult to find locations and all that. So uh, that, became, that then became the challenge was, how do you do a movie that's got all these black marks against it right away. It's about Northern Ireland. People don't like that. We were told, they don't want to see that. It's got a young lead character is only going to be 17, 18. There are no stars at that age. So you can't finance the film based on the actor. In fact, you probably want someone unknown, so you can't get money that way. Um, so it was, it was quite difficult. But because the industry were primed and ready for Jan's first film, 4A, then we, we were able to get there in the end. And, and like I say, because the script was so strong, people responded to the script. It's a very good read, irrespective of what you thought about you know, the subject and what the film might be. You could read it easily. 
and it's surprising sometimes not easy to read this one was and so people kind of looked at it and said this script with this director two and two equals seven so we all want to do it and they all get excited and then you can make the film yeah great so Jan had a presence already in film four and that made it and not just to... film four with other people as well yeah, yeah BFI film four studio canal everyone was saying when you're ready to make a film we want to be in the Andy Monge business so we'll we'll do it. Mm -hmm. um, so before you would consider working with a director or a writer-director on a feature film, what do they need to have achieved before they come to you? I, th I think much more like looking at the body of work and you can see what we were talking about earlier. Can they handle the actors? Can I see perfor good performance, even if it's in a short film or whatever? Can I see the quality there that they can, yeah. they can handle that side of it? They can shoot as well, make it look nice, great, but you can kind of fix those things. But someone who can tell the story and can work with actors, that's, that's what you're really looking for. And when you watch their work, you feel something. Mm. Whether it's, you know, their intention is delivered, if they're trying to make you scared or make you laugh or whatever, if they've delivered that and can give you the knot in the stomach you're looking for, um, then you want to talk to them. But, but then they have, to, they have to bring that to your own project. So it's fine, they've got something else right, can they get this right? So that's, you only really get that once you start talking to people and you know, like say, you try and see if they're getting under the skin of it, if they're going to be committed enough to go on a journey with you for maybe two years. It's very, very, you know, uh, you, know you have to have real commitment to make a film. This is your first film, you've got to just put everything in, 19 hours a day, 20 hours a day, maybe for two years, you're living with it might be longer than that so yeah. you need to make sure before you start on that journey you've got a, you've got a good partner uh, in every aspect and you so can get that wrong but it took me 14 years just to go to the extremes of that 14 years to finally get to shooting and it, it was like you know the, the, the bamboo plates on the top of the bamboo poles spinning it's absolutely, there are no straight lines in this business. You have to keep going round and round in, in circles, keeping things going, keeping things going. The hope is still going by the time you come back round the circle again. And often they, something's changed, some executive has lost a job and there's a different attitude. Or they've, they've, so, so you're constantly having to sort of believe in this thing that's the kind of will of the wisp in front of you all the time. But you must never give up. How did it eventually get the green light? That's too long a story. Oh, right, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's 14 it, years worth of story. It's a book. I mean, I could write right. a book about right, a that book. one film. Yeah. And it's just that you, you, what, what, you do, what, what you do in these situations is you're convincing people not so much about the integrity and the quality of the movie you're going to make, but how they can solve their particular needs. So you're dealing with this sort of almost like a therapeutic exercise <clears throat> in talking to people who have got all very divergent interests sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, but basically, with, with seven years, it was um, that well-known psychopath, uh, Peter Guber, who came in and basically he, he decided he'd, he loved Tibet and he loved Jean-Jacques Renaud and he wanted to make this, this happen. Yeah. Um, producers, new producers, um, what do you think, what does a producer do you, you said once, Ian, um, it's my favourite quote, is that as a producer, you're 
patrolling the borderlands between mm -hmm. art and commerce. I love mm. that quote. Because a, a lot of people say, oh, I'm a, I'm a creative producer, I'm a business producer, you know. I mean, what, what are the skills that a, a new producer needs to have? Well, the, the amazing thing about film is, is it, it's a sort of battlefield between art on the one side and money on the other. And you, you've got to try and find and maintain balance between the two. Um, which means that you're, you're functioning on one hand when you're talking to the money people. They have to believe that you are a totally sensible person and that you will keep your promises and you will deliver a high-quality film on time and on budget. So there's that side. But the other side is you have to also understand the creative ambition of the project, which um, in the main uh, uh, requires you to understand not just the script as you read it, even first or second or third time, but the script as you read it constantly. You're, you're discovering what is this actually going to be like on screen. And of course, your filmmaker is critical to that. So I find myself, particularly something like Fury Road, where we didn't actually have a screenplay, by the way, which is an interesting thing. Um, with someone like George Miller, you have, to, you have to really, really get inside his head. What is it that matters? Where is, where is the value to him? Why is that moment more valuable than that moment? Because that, that, that moment you might have to get rid of in order to stay on, on schedule and so on. But you, he won't respect you as a producer if you're not up to speed. In fact, you've got to be, in a funny way, even slightly ahead of him. Um, and so it's that balancing between the, the, the creative and the commercial, which I think is the core of producing at any level, even if it's a small budget. I think you have to have that, you have to understand what you're doing. But there's another aspect to this, which is, I always say, the, um, the process must not defeat the purpose. So in other words, you can have a beautifully organized film really nailed down a beautiful schedule, beautiful budget, and no one gives a shit. You know, it's like the doctors say, the operation was a success. Unfortunately, the patient died. And you see that a lot. You see finely crafted films. So I think it's a particularly British issue, actually. You see finely crafted films that no one gives a shit about because they're dull, and they don't take the audience by surprise. And if you don't take the audience by surprise, then they'll kill you. The audiences hate it when they're waiting on the story to catch up with what they've already um, 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 worked out. So it, producing very often, I mean, again, this is a subject that I could talk about for days, <laughs> but a producer is often the representative of the audience in, in the middle of the process and is able to step back because filmmakers become very absorbed in the detail as they must. But they have to always, you have to understand enough to be able to say, but be careful, of what about that? What about, do we really need to, I mean, I remember on Killing Fields, we had Sam Watterson running around with a note, notepad, right? Because he's a journalist, so he had a notepad. And we were about two weeks into shooting, and I suddenly realized that he hadn't let go of this bloody notepad. He had it everywhere, he had this notepad. So we got rid of the notepad, and, because that would have ended up looking really ridiculous on the screen. So little things like that. But basically remembering the audience has to understand what this story is about. And sometimes if you decide to cut a scene, say in the first third, 
then the moment at the end will not make sense because we know the script, we know the story, so we know why he looks out the window. But that little moment, that tiny little moment that explained why he looked out the window, you've just sort of arbitrarily cut that or shot it differently. And that's where you find audience comprehension becomes threatened. John, did you think about audience at the very, very start of your development process of Slow West? <coughs> I heard you say once before, actually, that never put the word slow in the title of your film. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, for sure, I think... It's, yeah, I do think about the audience when I'm writing, yeah. And, and um, mainly, I think I read somewhere you think about... You imagine the smartest person in the audience and then you think about them or, or the whole... You know, you, you never sort of think... You never underestimate the audience or, or you know, the audience are smarter than, than the writer in a way. So, um, yeah. Um, when you're writing, though, it has to be... The audience has to be just this abstract thing that you know you're making something for them rather than them being a part of the authorship of what you're making or something. And Lou, in docs, is there a big audience for documentary uh, Again, I don't think it's... I think it's to do with storytelling. I don't think it's to do with whether it's a documentary or fiction. And, and this film that I made got... It was a best feature category that it was in. Um, but, but going back to this thing, I think you have to recognise that you're a human being just like your audience is a human being and you've got maybe 200 biographies sitting there in front of each screening and there's probably more that you have in common with them than divides you. So as long as you trust your own instincts that this part of the film or this part of the film will, will move you, it will move them as well. And if you don't trust that you're a good barometer for that, then you probably shouldn't be making films. And it was... It was really interesting, actually, listening to John earlier, where he was talking about a film he made on a, a film in black and white, and he, and he, just, he just said, yeah, they, they, they didn't want it or something, but it was a good film. And it's that kind of bloody-minded stubbornness that you really do trust yourself that, that's, that's going to get you through it, mm -hmm. really. Yeah. When in the process should you consider casting? John, obviously, you worked with Michael Fassbender on your short, and that helped you to get your feature made? Did you have him in mind when you were writing your feature? Um, Ian, The Mission, one of my favourite films of all time, is not necessarily a very commercial film. Did the casting of Robert on paper, did the casting of Robert De Niro help get that <coughs> made? Of course, yeah. I mean, often those headline cast will, will trigger the green light. Um, in a way, it's kind of silly in one way because it's, the film is what it is. It's there already, but they make the difference. It gives the confidence to people to put their jobs on the line by saying, I'm going to green light this, you know. But, um, but ca so casting in, that, in the commercial sense of things is, uh, at that budget level, is very important. And the creative side, you've got to be very careful that you're not selling off the creative thing. Um, I mean, I, I, as, you know, with the mission, we... We originally had the two, the two characters played by uh, Robert De Niro and Jeremy Irons, um, who were more or less of the same age in the film. But it was written with the Jeremy Irons character being an older priest and the Robert De Niro being a younger, more impetuous soldier. And um, 
I think the, so the convenience, the expediency of casting these two prominent names, strangely, I think undermined what I think, looking back, was, could have been made into a really great film. By the way, every film that I'm involved in, I look at with regret. It's a pretty great film. <laughs> <laughs> because it's, you can't, because you've, in order to have that passion, that intensity that gets through things, you've got to have the dream. And, and the dream is the film that will never be made. It's the film that you, you hope will be made. And when you come out with this bandaged, plastered thing at the end of it, it, it's really quite difficult to fall in love with it. And at what point did Fassbender um, and Ben Mendelsohn become attached to Slow West? Yeah, I mean, um, Michael from the very start. I think for me, casting was just whatever gets the writing juices going and, you know, it helped to write the part of Silas with Michael in mind physically and, you know, it already gave me someone to really you know, start basing the character on roughly, you know, and I think, I think maybe I read that's how the Coen brothers do a lot of their, that's how sometimes their personalities really match the faces on their films mm -hmm. because they've written for these actors. And so in the writing that can help. And then it can also flip the other way. And when I made Man on a Motorcycle, I had Michael and I, I, I wrote this part for this, a different kind of part for a different kind of actor. And then, you know, it was two weeks before the shoot and we still got anyone. And Michael said, oh, Liam Cunningham's maybe coming down this weekend. He's free. What about him? And I was like, well, no, because he's slightly older and he's Irish and you're both Irish and that might be confusing. And then I went back to the script and that was kind of a eureka moment in the script where, oh, of course, if he is older and he is Irish, then that'll unlock... It unlocked the whole script, the casting, at near, you know, after months of it being locked so it can it can really work both ways it can you know and then when it came to um, casting the film like every other aspect of the film like the location you know the flexibility you have to sort of not see anything as a, a detrimental con compromise you have to see things as being flexible so um, okay I maybe didn't get my ideal part for this guy but then you know, um, and then the person you do get turns out to be better. And Ben Mendelssohn had written the part for a massive bloke, you know, and I thought it was going to be this huge baddie, you know. And then, you know, I met Ben and he's tiny. and Well, he's not tiny, but he's, he's sort of got a frailty about him. But of course he was perfect for the role and of course he was amazing, you know. And, and um, so you just... Yeah, you just have to sort of be fluid with it all, with yeah. casting. Yeah. Gus, first, first time producers <coughs> up here in Scotland who are embarking on their first feature with new directing talent, how do they approach casting? Because it's hard, isn't it, to, to get relationships with big casting directors and we don't have a vast amount of international cast available to us here in Scotland. So how do you go about casting your first feature? You've got to have a good script and an interesting director. It's, it's as simple as that. And I think there's a, it took me a long time to learn this, but there is a bit, I think anyway, in my opinion, that there's a bit of a fallacy around casting directors. Casting directors can't get you actors. They can send a script out to an agent and they can have a good, great relationship with people, but they won't, the, the actor will not commit to your film unless they 
they really want to work with the director and they really love the script. And especially they have to want to work with the director. There are sometimes other things can come into it to do with timing and money, like someone just wants a job, so they might take something. But if you're aiming, as Ian said, to minimise your failure uh, and make the film as good as it can be within, within all your limits, um, then you're trying to get the best person for each part. And the casting directors, they, they can give it a little bit of weight with an agent, but really it comes down to it. The casting director will give it to the agent, the agent will give it to the talent, and the talent has to read it and want to do it. So I don't think the geography of it, of us not having a sort of Mary Selway type, um, or Gail Stevens, or anyone like that in Scotland, I don't think that's an issue. If you've got a, if you've got a really good project, people will be interested in it. Now, you, you, might, you might get lucky with a meeting and you can attach a Michael Fassbender right at the start, or you might know a Ewan McGregor through another, another way, and that kind of, that, that alters the direction of travel because you already know you, you've got that component that you can work with. So you're going to write something for that person and you know they can help finance it. It can go that way. But generally, I think if you're, if you're starting out, you've got your, your beautiful project ready to go, yeah, try and get the best casting director attached. It's just money. Um, but then it's going to be down to, you know, there's not really any ways around it unless you're in the studio system or you're in America. There's no way around it in Europe that the actor has to want to do the film. And they only want to do it because of those, generally, the two main issues are going to be director number one and script number two. Hmm. Yeah, the actors know that they, their career can be ended. So they're looking at the filmmaker to see, are they going to be looked after? Are they going to be made to look good? Is the filmmaker going to be able to draw out of them the things that they have buried underneath? You know? So it's a, it's a very emotional, delicate, vulnerable part of the process. And there's, I mean, I work with um, Rory McCann, who's not a massive star, but... Porridge you know, Oats Man. Pardon? Is he the Porridge He's the Porridge Oats, Oats Man. Man. He's the yeah. hound, in, hound in Game of Thrones. Right, but yeah. um, <laughs> <coughs> I mean, he, he, on set, he's one of the be best actors I've ever worked with. You know, completely brilliant, completely natural, completely great to work with, and Scottish, you know? Yeah. And you just think, well, you know, the, forgetting about attaching names so you can attach budgets, there is wonderful actors, you know, that, um, at every level. Yeah. yeah. Now, yeah. before we... But sorry, Gus. One, just going back to the casting thing, the one way it can work as well on a practical level is that if you've got a sales agent on your film and if you've got a director and a script that people are interested in, the sales company who has to sell the film to other territories out, away from Britain, in this case, if I go to something like The Girl With All The Gifts, had three lead adult parts in it. And this, the sales company gave us six names for each part. And they said, get us one of them from each of that list for those three parts and you can make the film. If you don't get one of those in each, for each part, you can't. And it's, it's as simple as that. It can be as simple as that. Can I ask, before we open up to questions, how you funded each of your um, first features. Lou, what, what was the funding jigsaw for your documentary feature? Um, it was 
a TV company in Germany called BR, who we met at that, it, the pitch at Vision Do We Have. Um, it was Creative Scotland. It was, a, I think it was another TV company. Um, it was the Icelandic Film Centre. That, that, that was the initial money for it. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's quite a... Was that four funders? Yes. Yeah. Yes, it was. Yeah. And uh, do you want to share the budget of that? It was about... I think it was about... I don't know. I did, I did bring it, actually. It's out there. And, uh, I think it was about 225000 But some of that is still deferred wages, you know, that, that haven't been paid, like, to me and, uh, and the, you know, co-producers. So you sort of aim for what you would ideally want to get paid within that budget. And it's only the people you absolutely have to have on board who probably get paid in absolute full until it's been, you know... Uh, well, so far it's been to about three terrestrial TV channels. So as the money mounts up, we'll pay off the rest of it, and we'll probably yeah. come last. Mm -hmm. John, how was Slow West funded? Um, film Four commissioned it, so Film Four developed the script, and then part funded with Film Four and the BFI, and then it was all about location. So we're looking at America, we're set in Colorado. So we looked at America, and then we looked elsewhere and New Zealand seemed to fit all the best locations, best season to shoot it in for Michael's availability, and, uh, and I would get more days there. Um, and so we went for New Zealand, and they co-funded it as well. So it was part funded by New Zealand Film Council. Mm -hmm. Do you see a difference in funding now with Netflix and Amazon? Well, that's a big, a big change upon it already. It's the, the model, <coughs> the traditional model that's been described here of the, the dog and pony show of having to get pre-sales and put it all together and patch it together is, is being savagely undermined by Netflix and Amazon just behind them. Um, Google and Apple coming up um, pretty quick. Um, where they, they're basically using um, 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 movie streaming as the video-on-demand streaming as, the, as the, the, the central revenue source. And what Netflix does is it buys the, the world. It buys the whole thing. And um, unless you're, you're big and ugly enough, you won't get any back-end on a Netflix deal. But they won't pay for everything. And so you tend to... to from talking to, I haven't made a Netflix movie yet, but um, talking to people who have, they, they allow a certain amount of front-loading so that you get your value more from, from the fees that you take during production than traditionally waiting for a back-end. Uh, but because the paradigm that has been in existence for many years now doesn't work anyway, because very few people get anything in the back-end, that's not such, a, not such a hardship for filmmakers. They'd much rather get their film made and seen by hundreds of millions of people around the world than have it sort of stuck on some kind of a shelf. So the paradigm is changing, and I think the, what's interesting about Netflix, if you look at the statistics, which they don't, they don't release, um, so you have to really kind of know how to get some of this, but their uh, reliance on the rest of the world, meaning outside of North America, is very, very high. So already both Amazon and, and um, Netflix are in Britain and looking for content that will 
appeal to a much more, much more diverse international audience than has traditionally been the case. So theoretically, at least, there are opportunities for uh, new ideas and new content and new, new people. They're open to that. They're young, and they want to see young people. They don't want to see boring old farts like me. Well, that's a nice positive note to end on <laughs> for the audience. <laughs> um, I'd like to throw it open to questions. Does anyone have any? Yes. Last year, I actually got a TV programme put on ESTV Glasgow. It was called The Cruise. It was actually written, co-written and directed by Colin Ross Smith. It's about Glasgow gangsters and everything else. The whole point of what I was going to ask is, what would you advise for us now? We've got a letter of intent coming from STV looking for a second series. They don't have the funds to give us to actually make the second series, but they've given us a letter of intent. So where would you suggest we go and how would we do it? <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's not, not enough information for me to give you a sensible answer, but um, if you think it has broader appeal than simply Glasgow, then I, I think there are, there are certainly conversations to have in London. Um, but even in London, not, I don't want to depress everybody, but even in London, the, the media situation is not particularly healthy at the moment. <clears throat> but you've certainly got a better chance um, down south than you do up here, much as I regret that. Um, I, I think you could, if, it depends really on this, I haven't seen it, so I don't, I, don't, I don't know the scale and the ambition of it. And if it, you know the difference between stereotypes and archetypes, you know. If it's archetypal and can travel and be seen by an audience that doesn't understand Glasgow or Scotland, then you, 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 you know, then I think it's worth making a trip. If you've got good material and you own it, and, and you can package it a little bit, then I think it is worth making a trip to Los Angeles. Um, to uh, certainly, it does no harm to talk to Netflix and Amazon, but also HBO. And as I say, there are other places coming up now that would be interested in that kind of stuff, as long as it can travel and be enjoyed and appreciated and understood outside of Glasgow. Well, it has, it has actually now got an audience where it's been shown in places like Liverpool, Bristol, But you own the IP, you own the, you own the intellectual property, do you? Yeah. He's your man, isn't he? He's your man, isn't he? You. Yeah. But they don't want to make it. It's not that they don't want to make it, it's because it's went through STV Glasgow. So far, we've not approached anybody else. And uh, from where we're no. getting funding, we don't that. I think that was good advice. Then go and take it to people that do have money to give you to get it made. Yeah. Any other questions? Um, so, this is a question for you, Ian, actually. Um, 
I'm a, I'm a huge fan of all of your all of the movies that you've been a part of. So obviously you have a great high for stories. Um, can you s tell me um, or the us, the audience, um, what are some of your favorite stories out with the movies that you've made? So it kind of gives us an idea of what big time people are looking for when you talk about good storytelling. Um, what are big time people looking for? Well, <laughs> everyone, everyone is looking for the thing that no one's ever had before. I mean, their innovation is. Is critical. Innovation, meaning something, I mean, there are, the, there are, there's the old epithet that the stories are seven stories and, and they just go around and around. I'm not sure I entirely believe that, but innovation in the way you tell, the way you tell them is critical. And the other thing that is a very difficult thing to, to define is honesty. When you read something that's written with a kind of honesty about it, you know, that Bill Forsyth in his early years, you know, Bill's um, honesty people worked right across the world. People who saw those films and immediately recognized something in themselves. And, and that's, that's very, very hard to pour out of a bottle. So, so the, even the biggest, I mean, the, um, the Bruckheimer people, you know, Bruckheimer makes these huge movies, you know. And when I was talking to them a year or so ago, they, they said that the local hero was their favourite movie. And I, at first I thought they were being very Hollywood, you know, but actually they weren't. What, what they were actually saying was, and we make all this stuff, you know, but boy, that movie had something that we can't get, you know. So there's, everyone is chasing this, this idea of the, the home run movie, the movie that's going to change the world, you know. And everyone starts out, hopefully anyway, making that movie. And, and then, as I say, you end up looking at it with a tinge of regret that we should never have cast that person. Or <laughs> why the hell did we shoot that on the on a Tuesday when we should have done it when, when it wasn't raining? <laughs> and so, so it's it's a it's a complicated question to answer briefly. And I'm I'm aware that time is not generous. <laughs> on that, that note, any other questions? Microphones. Yeah. Hi, um, I really enjoyed the session today. Um, I'm a, a, a Pakistani female actress, so I was quite interested in what you were saying, Ian, about diversity. And um, it's really difficult, actually, in, in Scotland, because when people just see your colour and then they want to stereotype you. So I played, you know, all the usual stereotypical Pakistani Asian roles. And another one came through the door on Friday, and I thought, oh, I've just had enough. You know, and at what point do you say, look, if Anthony Hopkins can play Othello, can I not play Lady Macbeth? You know, so I'm just wondering what advice you would give. Do I keep on going for those stereotypical roles or do I actually say, as you said, Gus, no, I'm not doing it anymore? Shall I, I'm sorry, I'm slightly hogging <laughs> the thing here. Um, the, the, uh, as you're probably aware, there, there are now um, very, very high-level um, diversity programmes happening um, in terms of legislating try and uh, improve, because the film industry across the UK has a, has a very poor diversity quotient. Um, and, and, and so the, on that level, which I, I think is, is necessary, but probably not really going to be that effective in, 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 in any short time. Um, but I, I do think that it comes back to the ideas. If the ideas get round the stereotypical, of, of the, the this person plays that kind of part, you know, 
I mean, for instance, in Fury Road, uh, uh, how many of you have seen Fury Road? Wow. Okay. <laughs> Um, then uh, the, whole, the whole thing about, for instance, it's a different issue, but it's similar, about Charlize having no arm. Um, you know, that was a conscious decision that, that would never be referred to. It would never be made much of. There was never going to be a scene where she says, well, I got captured and I fought and I lost my arm or, or a truck ran over my arm. So the whole thing was kind of thrown away in that sense. And of course, what... what we've discovered, we didn't do it too knowingly, we just did it because we thought that was a better way of telling the story. But actually, many disabled groups around the world, and particularly in the United States, have picked up on that because that's, they see that as a very positive thing, that, that a disabled person is such a central character and um, a, a change agent for the story. So I think, I think it's a process of evolution. In terms of whether you should take work or not, of course you should take work. You, the, you know, your, your second duty in life is to be a huge international success. Your first one is to be, survive. And you've got to survive, because if you don't survive, then you're never going to be there for that opportunity that yeah. Gus was talking about. Question down the front here. Hello, guys. Uh, just like St. Angus, I thought uh, 71 is probably one of the best British-made yeah, yeah. movies uh, in the last several years. <laughs> Outstanding. Uh, my question is for John, and this is in regards to approaching a project as a writer-director. How do you... You talked about Film, film 4 developing the script. Mm. Throughout that process, how do you retain creative control? And, and what are the sacrifices you... You know, uh, Ian, you just uh, touched on intellectual property for a second there. But how much IP do you have to give up to get funding? Where do you draw the line that, as an artist, not necessarily just as a businessman, you have to stick to your guns? And obviously, you have to make a living. Do you sell the farm just to get your name out there? Um, I think, um, first... Um, there's a few bits to this question. Um, I think first of all, having my taste in, uh, I've got a sort of dual taste in, in cinema where I love the Robocops and Terminators and Predators and I love the, the, the films that are seen as blockbusters, the good ones anyway, Mad Max. And, um, <laughs> and I love the Bergman and the Tarkovskys and the, the Bressons, you know, and so somehow... Um, they both feel like the same sort of thing to me. So there's, you know, which again, it goes back to, you know, a good story, you know, and and um, you know, I tried somehow with Slow West to to capture a little bit of both both of my loves, you know, get my cake and eat it. So in that respect, Film Four is quite a good fit, you know, and and then they left me alone, really. Um, the question at the beginning was them trusting me, and it's all about trust. So um, the, I hadn't written a feature film before, so there was, they immediately said, right, we need to get you in with writers, and you know, they threw different writers at me, and some writers wanted to take the whole project off and write it themselves, and, and, and I wasn't up for that. Other people didn't get really the heart of what I wanted to try and tell, which was, in a way, a Western, in another way, a personal story of a young Scottish person 
Highland clearances, going to America, um, the same way as I went to America with sort of dreamy um, discoveries when I was younger. So um, we, you know, finally I, I sort of realised that I had to write it, and um, then someone told me about this wonderful thing called a script editor, which I didn't know about, and um, so I met one or two script editors. Um, one in particular, we immediately just clicked a woman called Kate Lees, and um, she became my script editor, and, and, and she was the missing link between um, my writing and what I wanted to do and tell and the story, and also then her taking fielding notes from Film 4 and from the, the producers and giving me the, the notes that were worthwhile, and, and you know, so... Um, that was a very important part of the jigsaw. May I just say a quick thing about IP? IP is your value, and when you start to, when you have a bright idea one night in the middle of the night, and you are basically starting out on a journey to create value in IP, and and the longer you can do that on your own, in the sense of owning it, the better. Um, I mean, I, I I will finance. Everything I do was developed until the point when I start to get the filmmaker interested and maybe even the, the stars interested. Because that's the point when, if you've held out that long, then in, in the process you, you then have more control, more authority over the material. If you, if you take development money, which is a totally realistic thing to do, then to some extent you're surrendering that authority. And you could find yourself, you have to choose your partners carefully and, you know, Channel 4, Film 4 has always been um, started with David Rose a long time ago, and it's always had a very talent-centric approach. Long may it continue, and I'm not sure it will. But that's, if you've got a good partnership there, then you're in with a chance. We've got time for only one more question after this, I'm sorry. What about all the people up the back? Been, I know. Uh, we'll do I'm one up the side. back. We'll do side. one up the back, sorry. Right. Uh, I have a question to John. Uh, how did you get in touch with Film 4? Um, was it them who got in touch with you, or was it you who picked um, up the phone and called them or emailed them? Yeah, I mean, I, I, spent, I, I sent scripts to Film 4, short film scripts, the same way as I sent short film scripts to Creative, Scot <laughs> Creative Scotland, <coughs> and, and got the thanks very much, but no thanks for, for years. Um, I think that this one person in the film industry that I, I grabbed this agent called Connor, who's um, Michael's agent, um, he said, well, I know, I'll set you up with a meeting at Film 4. Um, someone in Film 4 met me in a cafe. Um, we talked for about 20 minutes. They said, we, we don't, we can't, you've not made any short films. We can't quite see where, we can't give you funding yet. Go away, come back. You know, when you've done something, it's a chicken and egg thing. But um, so I went away, made man on a motorcycle, and then at least I could go back to to this person and say, "Here, I've made something." You know, they sent someone down to. Uh, we had a little screening, and we invited family, friends, and then a few industry, and and you know, we asked them to come along. They actually just sent someone along. Um, and he reported back that it was interesting and good and they should see it. So that's how I got in my foot in the door. Sending things unofficially is a death walk. Yeah. 
I'm afraid, because the system is designed to repulse. Yeah. Okay, final question up the back. No pressure, it better be a good one. No pressure at all. Um, so basically, um, funding and support for emerging talent in Scotland is extremely limited. And as such, as an as a aspiring filmmaker, you're faced with a, a massive amount of competition when you're looking for funding and support for your debut feature film. Um, so my question really is, if you have a vision, and a vision to make a film in Scotland, but you're faced with such difficulties in getting the backing behind it, would you say in order to make the film as, as good as possible, then it's worth sacrificing parts of your vision to look into funding and support from other countries such as England or Ireland, who certainly have a lot more in the way of talent development and funding opportunities? Or would you say it's more important to stay to your vision, stay true to your vision, make the film as you want to make it with as little or as much money as you can possibly manage to get and then use that as a way to get yourself noticed to then use it as a stepping stone onto a career. Gus? Well, as we were talking about earlier to the, the actor, um, you've got to find a way to make it work. You've got to find a way to stay in the game, stay in the business, and you might be making uh, incremental steps that are slightly smaller than you would like, and going slower than you would hope, but you've got to, you've got to stay in the game, and if, if you need to change a location or a character's nationality or something to make use of you know, a practical opportunity in terms of funding, then I would say absolutely, do it, 100%. You might find out that once you've thought about it a bit, it's making your project better. So I think it's a, to be honest, it's a no-brainer because your responsibility is to your career and your project, your life, and you've got to take that seriously and get on with it. So if you think there's an opportunity to do it that way, you know, I'm not saying exactly by any means necessary, but that sounds a pretty straightforward process. Um, I would definitely do it. I know people who've made, you know, from Scotland who've used money in Ireland or uh, certainly in Ireland, maybe not so much in Wales, but it can definitely happen. And that's how lots of people work anyway, as a patchwork of finance that you use. And every time you take money from a country in Scandinavia, there's a price to pay, which says, oh, well, you have to shoot there for a day or whatever. You know, they did that, for example, I think Filth, the, the Evan Welsh adaptation was shot all over Europe, because they were picking up little bits of local subsidy here and there. And it was, you know, that's just, that's a decision they had to take to get the film made. And that's what you might have to do, and I don't think that's, I don't think that's too much of a compromise. You could always do the editing somewhere yeah. else. Like doing, doing post-production, mm. I suppose. You do the post-production, you could take something else, and do it in Wales so that they're getting their local spend or their local value, they're getting something out of it. Do a bit of casting in Wales, you know, whatever it is that the funding source that you, you might need gets out of it, what's their benefit? If you, if you can hit the, hit the mark for them, go for it. Absolutely. Thank you. Nobody comes out of the business unviolated. <laughs> <laughs> no one. And on that note. Thanks very much for coming and thank you very much, panel. Thank you.